I have in the rectory a table. It's, it's, it's not an ordinary table. It's a kind of a time machine. If you ever have any of you have anything in the house like this, uh, it, uh, it's a little Duncan Five dining room or coffee table that, that my grandparents used to own. And one day I was sitting there and I, I did a little game of imagination. And I left the table right where it was at and moved the house in my mind. Have you ever tried this? All the places that that table had been, and there's a lot of them, and it, it turned out to be a kind of a history of, of my life and the life, it had a life of its own. And there it was with a big plant on it, and the plant leaked all over it, and it had to be completely refinished. I remember that. That was when it was not a valued commodity. And then later, when I owned it, I had a TV set on it at one time. It was a small TV, and it fit just perfectly on that. That was another place, and a very happy memory of that, of that time. And the table was there. And then again, I moved it up to uh, Mount Angel, and on the process of moving it to, uh, I had it in a little storage unit while I was in the seminary, and it broke. Two of the legs broke off, and somebody at Mount Angel repaired it, and you can't tell. But it's been somewhere. It has a history and, and so on. And now today it's over here at the rectory. It started out in the 1930s with my grandparents as a wedding gift from my aunt, all of them deceased. You see what I mean? These little pieces of our lives have the power to evoke the past. In fact, you can almost say that the past becomes present because in another time and era, the table still exists in those places. In that time, in that place, those things exist in my mind. Now, I mention that because in the last two weeks we've talked about the Mass, and this is going to be the last time I, I talk about that for a while, is that we also have a place like this, and it's called the altar. And the Mass is, as we said before, is it's the Last Supper brought forward in time, or rather, we're brought to the Last Supper. It, because the Lord knew that we could not be with him, uh, not physically, not personally, he gave us a sacrament so that we could, could be present at the Last Supper and present on the cross and present in the resurrection of the dead. And that's the, that's the Eucharist that we, that we partake of and the sacrifice and the sacred meal and the word which we hear, which gives life to the sacraments because we, it gives us faith. And so the altar, in a sense, also evokes that because it's, it, the altar, is in a, in a way, it evokes every other altar all over the world, uh, going back to the table of the Last Supper, where Christ offered himself sacramentally and then, and then offered his life physically the next day. Our altar here is now five months old, and those of you who remember the old altar, you know we had an altar stone in the top of it, this altar does not need an altar stone because it has a top that's made of wood, excuse me, made of, made of stone. The other one was an altar, had a, had a metal top, so we had a, 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 uh, a tile of stone about this big, and it had five crosses on it, one cross for each of Christ's wounds. This altar top also has five crosses on it. That's traditional with, with an altar. The, the word altar is very interesting. I have my notes up here, but I don't think I need them. It comes from, the, when I pull out Latin and Greek, I always have to look it up. It uh, comes from uh, altare, which means high, and era, meaning table, so a high table. And the altar is, before it was consecrated and it was sitting here, we could put anything on it, and it was not yet 
used. It's not just having the, the marble top that was put on later, but when Archbishop Stample came and poured the sacred chrism all over the altar, at that point it became a sacred thing, and we don't put anything on it except what is absolutely necessary. The book, the candles, and on some altars, such as down at the cathedral now, as St. Joe's has got this, a number of at St. Peter's, they use this. They have a little, little cross, or sometimes even a larger cross, right here. What that symbolizes, of course, you're looking at a cross here, and that remind, every Catholic church has a crucifix, because it reminds us that this is also it's Christ's, Christ's sacrifice represented, not represented, but represented to us. It's the same sacrifice, the same, the same cro- sacrifice of the cross. Now that the priest is facing this way, uh, which has been since Vatican II, uh, having the cross in front of the priest, notice it's facing towards the priest, is, uh, reminds the priest of what he's doing, that he's not entertaining you. He, rep- he represents Christ. And it is Christ who takes his words uh, and places them in the priest's mouth. The priest is, is, is giving voice to Christ's words. That's, that's what it is. The altar is also represents Christ in a different way, and that's why we treat it with reverence. The one that we retired, we can't use it for a cutting board or a kitchen table. It is a, still a sacred thing, even though we're not using it now. We took it out of the old church and called an auditorium, but the, but the altar must be dealt with in a sacred way. The altar, uh, I wanted to just briefly kind of go through a few things uh, in the, in the liturgy, when we begin the Eucharistic prayer, uh, the, uh, we start out with a very sacred language. You know, I don't, we come up and I say, the Lord be with you. And what do you say? Now, what if I saw you in Safeway? Would I say that to you? Oh, Jim, the Lord be with you. What would you say? She said, thank you, Father. See? <laughs> when I, or, so that's how I always greet the staff. Oh, you know, Jim, the Lord be with you. We, we don't use that language. And it, the language is a sacred language because we've entered into another time and another space. We're in a place between heaven and earth. In a sense, the Mass is outside of time, while it's for fully in time. But it's outside of time because every other Mass of every other time and place and Christ's own sacrifice is really here. And so we step into a sacred world in which we use a sacred liturgy. So I don't say, hey, you know, what, what would I say? Well, I wouldn't say hey. Maybe I would say it. If I said hey, I wouldn't say it again. So as we progress through the Eucharistic prayer, the holy, 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 which means, as Father Jeremy said when I was in class with him, different, different, different. We're in a, we're in a different world, a different place, a different time. As the, as the Eucharistic prayer progresses, we, we get to the to the epiclesis, which we talked about last week. It is the calling down of the Holy Spirit, again, by the use of the priest's hands. This gesture is the wings of the Spirit being called down over the altar that the gifts of bread and wine may become the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we use the the cross over over the elements. This begins what we call the institution narrative. And that's that's a fancy word for saying this was instituted by Christ. Now, if you look carefully at the the three Gospels, and one letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, I believe chapter 11, the, the, the institution, that is the consecration, is, is a combination of all four sources. Not any one is used completely, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which describes 
the way they broke bread and celebrated the Eucharist in the early church in Corinth. That's the one that is most closely followed in the Eucharistic prayer. Notice that all four the words are exactly the same. The priest must say them that way. We, we switched over to the new translation. I found myself slipping into the old translation. Sometimes I still do. But as long as my intention is, is, is to say it correctly, that's sufficient. And so we have in the institution narrative, Christ himself is speaking. It is Christ who is performing this sacrifice. It is Christ who is, uh, who is calling down the Holy Spirit, and it is Christ present on the altar. After that, we have what we were talking about earlier, the sacred remembering. It's called the anamnesis. There'll be a test after Mass, by the way. Uh, and if I said to you the word amnesia, what does that mean? For, to forget something. So uh, amnesia is forgetting. Anamnesis is remembering. See how easy that is? So not so easy, huh? That sacred remembering, we remember Christ's death, his ascension, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension into heaven. We, it is a, a bringing present to us the, the very great and the very heart of our sacrifice and celebration. One part I forgot, we have what, after the, the first, the consecration of the bread to the body of Christ, we have a, a, a moment of sacred silence. And yet, we are, it, it is a, uh, a moment in which we have full, active, and conscious participation, and yet there is silence for the elevation. You remember, of course, the elevation occurs because in the, in the, in the church for the previous thousand years, we, the priest was celebrating Mass uh, in the same direction as the people, so of course he would hold the host up above his head, and we, although we turned the Mass around, we still do that as a sign of reverence for the Lord. Then we have the second consecration. And then the priest, or the deacon, if we have one, will say, Mysterium Fide, the mystery of faith. What does that mean? It means that that was used because people couldn't always see what was, uh, what was happening at the altar in the past, so they would ring the bell, which we still do, to say, the consecration is at hand at the first epiclesis and then at the two consecrations. And then the the, 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 the priest or the deacon or the server would say, Mysterium Fide, the mystery of faith. We still do that today. This was revived after Vatican II, added back to the liturgy, and this is a chance for you to make your profession of faith, at which we addressed, we address Christ directly at the altar. We proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. Then we have the sacred remembering. And finally, we have the final doxology. Through him, with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. This, too, was revived after Vatican II and placed back into the liturgy. So, the last thing I wanted to mention about the altar, which I forgot, is that we have two relics in the altar. Um, In the old church, we had uh, a relic, and there's no way to know who it is. We can't find the papers, and the diocese does not know. So I asked the diocese to get us another relic, and the relic that they offered us was St. Clair. I think St. Clair is an excellent choice. It's nice to have both a male saint and a female saint. St. Clair is the patroness of media and television. She's a patroness of evangelization and a co-patron of Europe. And, she, uh, and her, her relic is here in the altar. Why do we have a relic in the altar? Um, a relic is, it, uh, in the early church, the, 
the, uh, they would often celebrate Mass in the catacombs, not just to hide, because the Romans knew where the catacombs were, but because they wanted to connect themselves with the past, with those who had suffered and died for the faith. So they would celebrate Mass right on the tomb of a martyr. I've done this in Rome at uh, Saint, the tomb of St. Sebastian. There's, there's a little altar there that we celebrated Mass. And it connects them with those who actually offered their lives. And if you go to, to Europe today, you can find, for example, in Monte Cassino, where St. Benedict and St. Scholastic are buried, which are local saints for us with Mount Angel, um, that they're right under the high altar. And even in this country, when you go to St. Charles Borromeo Church in Carmel, you find that Unipero Serra is buried right in front of the altar. And to connect us with the past, and in a sense, brings the past forward to us. So we have the same, although St. Edward and St. Clair are not martyrs, yet they connect us with the, with the communion of saints, which are present when we celebrate Mass in, in heaven, is always worshiping God. So we pray that on this feast of Saints Peter and Paul, martyrs for the faith, that we too, by our greater and greater understanding of what we worship, that we may, we, we may become that which we worship, the Eucharist, which is thanksgiving. We may give thanks to God for the greatness of our faith, which is our most priceless possession.